So this episode, we're going to talk about the Netflix show Anatomy of a Scandal, uh, which we think has a lot of good themes about rape culture and the way that it's portrayed in the media, as well as the complicated emotions that everyone feels when a woman who is accusing a man of rape is not a perfect victim or morally compromised in some way, as well as a lot of the red flags and entitlement that comes from men who feel that they are entitled to women, which I think this show portrays really well. We'll get into a brief discussion and summary of what the show's about. And then in the latter half of the episode, we discuss the complicated topics around rape culture and what might be considered gray rape, where uh, rape when you're already in a relationship with someone. So stay tuned for that. As always, check out our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash the female dating strategy. If you want to discuss this episode further with us on our Discord, as well as listen to other bonus episodes. Uh, and submit a question for uh, our Roast to Scrote grab bag episode, which we just had last week. So let us know what you think and check us out again at patreon.com forward slash the female dating strategy. What's up, queens? Welcome to the female dating strategy podcast, the meanest female only podcast on the internet. I'm Ro. I'm Savannah. And I'm Lilith. And today we're going to talk about anatomy of a scandal finally. Anatomy of a Scandal. Which you previewed a few weeks ago. I've been previewing this, like, did I preview this in, like, the Brexit episode, like, months ago, right? I've been wanting to talk about this for a while, but Savannah was gone, and I'm so glad Savannah's back. So, Savannah, first of all, as someone from the UK, what did you think of this? What did you think of this TV show? <laughs> so people were complaining it's too Americanized. Like, did you get that sense? Uh, yeah. To some degree, yeah, but it's always funny seeing how things like the House of Commons is depicted because it's not like that at all. Like the House of Commons is bigger, it's more rowdy, and you have the speaker, you know, always saying like, order, order. That was John Burkow, he's not there anymore. But yeah. You know, some of the dialogue in the Commons, like bringing up the rape stuff, that would never be allowed in the House of Commons because it's all about referring to my right honourable friend. And there's just some stuff that just wouldn't be allowed. Like you, there have been MPs who've actually been kicked out for saying something that wasn't even rude, that was technically true, but you just have to be prim and proper. So it's like more rowdy, but more polite at the same time. What? Yeah, yeah. Like it's, it's really, really weird. <laughs> It's really weird. Like there was one MP, I think he was the MP for for Bolsover in the North. He called David Cameron Dodgy Dave. And the speaker at the time said, either take it back or leave. And he refused to take it back. So he was kicked out for the rest of the day. So it's always rowdy, but quite respectful at the same time. Totally different to the Senate or the Congress in America. So for people who haven't seen this show, can you give it an overview? Give the series an overview before we jump into specifics about it. Okay, okay, okay. So Anatomy of a Scandal, it's a six-part miniseries. It's got Michelle Dockery and Rupert, was it Rupert Friend? Is that how you pronounce his last name? Yeah, Rupert Friend and Sienna Miller as well. And Sienna Miller, yeah. I thought they were really great, strong acting all around, but basically Rupert Friend's character, James Whitehouse, he's an MP, a conservative MP in the House of Commons. Tory MP. Oh yeah, they don't call them conservatives, they call them Tories. The Tories, yeah. He's a Tory, but he's not like other Tories, guys. He's a progressive Tory. He's one of the good guys, okay? (laughs) (laughs) At least that's how the show sets him up at first. And then, yeah, so he has an affair. He's married with kids, but he has an affair with one of his co-workers, like a researcher or something, someone that he works with. Shit, what's her name? I can't remember. Olivia Litton, which, by the way, is absolutely not allowed. It's against the codes. Like... (laughs) (laughs) What, having an affair? 
Now, having an affair with the member of your staff is absolutely not allowed as an MP. I'm sure it happens all the time. It does, but it's just not allowed. They just have risky sex. <laughs> yeah, so he has an affair. The show hinges on there's an incident in the elevator where they have sex. She says it was rape after they break up. So he breaks up with her. Then they have sex in an elevator. She argues it was not consensual. That was rape. He says it was just like a heat of the moment, like passionate, blah, 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 kind of thing. And then there's some stuff that happened in history, you know, with how do I explain what happened with the school? Like, what the fuck was with that school, Savannah? Like, what the fuck is with your school system? Yeah, so basically, I'll just rewind. So James Whitehouse was having an affair with Olivia Lytton. She then accuses him of rape. And basically the whole series is hinged on this trial. Now, it's really quite cool how they do it. So they do flashbacks to when James and his wife, I've forgotten her name, I think it was Sophie, when they were all in Oxford. Yeah, Sienna Miller's character is called Sophie and she's married to James Whitehouse. And so they do a flashback to when they were all at Oxford. Now, James and the Prime Minister, I think he's called Tom in the series, They were both in a clique or like a fraternity, as you would say in the US, called the Libertines. Great name, by the way. (laughs) And what's interesting about the Libertines is that, but it's actually based on a real life, like elitist, pompous piece of shit club called the Bullingdon Club. And if you search online for Boris Johnson, David Cameron, George Osborne, all our top politicians, they were all once part of this Bullingdon Club. Now, what it is, is this ultra wealthy, like super elite club at Oxford that basically they go around to hotels, to restaurants, restaurants and they just smash it. They are very, very obnoxious. They've been banned from so many different places. And the reason is they'll basically go into a restaurant, they will wreak havoc and they'll pay for the damages in cash because they're all rich men or they're all like rich kids. The uniform alone for the Bullingdon Club is like three and a half grand. So even to just like wear the uniform, that will cost you like three and a half grand. And all the it's an all male club as well. And all of them are from private schools such as Harrow, St. Paul's or Winchester. So, and that's what the Libertines was based on. And in the series, you see the Libertines and James and Tom when they were students engaging in really, really bullish, shitty behavior. And so there is a particular incident where Tom, who is the present day prime minister, he supplies another member of the Limitines with heroin and that member ends up falling to his death and Tom and James basically run away from the scene and cover it up basically in the flashback. In another flashback as well we see James essentially raping a student that named Holly on her way back from a party. He basically rapes her and whispers in her ear you're such a prick tease and she was a virgin at the time. And what's interesting and so the twist is that the barrister who is prosecuting James for the rape of Olivia Lytton is actually the student he raped at Oxford named Holly but it's not known who she is until towards the end of the series because if it came out that she was connected with a defendant or she knew him in any way then she would be disbarred and she wouldn't have been allowed to take the case but she took it anyway knowing that he was her rapist and so the series moves on we see the flashbacks we see how initially when James is accused of rape Tom who's a prime minister basically stands by him publicly despite being told by his advisor basically drop him and so like spoiler alert uh, James is ultimately acquitted of the rape but throughout the series as well we see Sophie who is his wife suspecting that the barrister prosecuting him is actually Holly because uh, Sophie and Holly were like roommates in the first year at Oxford and they studied together and so you know she confronts Holly 
who now goes by the name of Kate, who just denies it because if she admits it, then she's admitting to something deeply unethical. But so after James gets off the trial, he's happy. He's like, I've got my life back. And he tells his wife that he said something that Olivia Litton claimed he said when he raped her. So don't be such a prick tease. Yeah, did you say, don't be such a prick tease? And James admits to it and says, I did say that, but I couldn't admit to that in court. Otherwise, you know, that would have looked really bad. And that was when Sophie realises that he was the rapist. And he was lying the whole time, yeah. He was lying to her the whole time, too. And he was lying the whole time. And also, after that, before she leaves him, James confesses that he was involved in the death of the student. Him and Tom were involved. The series concludes with uh, Sophie going to meet Kate and telling her, I know that you're Holly. Uh, Kate doesn't deny it at this point. But then then Sophie tells Kate that I've basically gone to the press and exposed the Prime Minister and my husband for being involved in the death of that student. And that's going to bring down her majesty's government and that's how the series ends yeah so thank you for that amazing summary savannah i think you watched it a lot more recently than me thank you oh yeah i did it in a day uh, in the morning yeah so what's the purpose of us discussing this so like let's give an overarching reason why we thought this would be a good thing to discuss on the pod okay so first of all the entire time i was riveted at the edge of my seat i really enjoyed the show i think first of all the thing i love the most about the show is that it shows the gradual shift a man who's a well-loved public figure is accused of something horrible like rape or you know it could be domestic violence or some other crime against women how does the public respond when a beloved male public figure is accused of terrible behavior like that right especially the wife actually because he lies to her at first and says i'm not a rapist it was just an affair you know yada 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 kind of thing he trickle truths her throughout the whole thing he trickle truths her throughout the whole thing. And then she slowly realizes like, holy shit, I've been defending a, a literal rapist this whole time kind of thing. Right. And basically, you know, given that this came out or I watched this right before the Johnny Depp trial, right. There's a lot of parallels actually with the Johnny Depp trial, like the way that they smear the woman, the way that they, you know, have too much empathy for the man and all the Darvo and the victim blaming and everything. It just, it's a whole phenomenon. Yeah. And it also, I think, highlighted really well the way that the women who are married to these men or attached to these men, the weird situation that puts them in. Because throughout the series, you know, Sophie, who was married to James, it was, you know, she was advised that you have to attend court each day. It will look really, really good. And during Olivia's testimony, we see that, you know, Sophie walks out. She's had enough. And then she decides, I can't go and sit there whilst they're talking about the affair and the rape. I just can't do it. And you see James like literally just have a go at her and saying it would have looked so good if you were there. Just, you know, not caring about the well-being of his wife as well. He has to sit there and listen to, to how he shagged his mistress and how they fell in love and how his mistress turned around and said that he raped her. Just complete disregard for her feelings. Like so humiliating. Imagine having to go to court every day, even if, you know, because even in the story, he said that he cheated on her. From the get-go, I was like, wait, you're just going to accept that he cheated on you? Like she was weirdly cool with that from the beginning. 
but the things with Sophie as well became apparent that like, even though she went to Oxford she didn't have a career of her own I think she wanted to get into creative writing but because she was raising the children she just became like a stay-at-home mum and that tends to happen a lot to especially women who marry these upper-class British men is that they sort of even though they don't have to stay at home but they sort of lose their own identity and just become like the wife that they parade at events or at you know parliamentary elections when they win they don't have an identity of their own and I think this series especially hit close to home because in the UK you know we've got 650 MPs at least 50 of them are under investigation for sexual assault and sexual harassment like in the past year damn to have been convicted so that's a tenth of our legislature one in seven yeah and that's at least there's more there's definitely more but at least 50 are under current investigation or have been under investigation and two have been convicted in the past year and sent to prison for it so it was a very very you know topical one and I think it really did a good job of showing just the complex interplay between a rape accusation and class and privilege as well basically yeah i wanted to talk about sophia a lot actually i I want this episode almost to hinge on her character because i feel like first of all sienna miller did a great job acting her she did or performing that role but she was a mistress once as well by the way yeah oh (laughs) (laughs) i don't know much about her personal history but she was really really good i really liked her portrayal of the character sophie yeah but i think it really shows like you know people bash you know the conservative trad wife kind of character right and I feel like this show did a really good job sort of portraying some of the mixed incentives or the conflicting incentives that conservative women face. I don't even want to say conflicting. I'd say like the self-destructive almost choices that they're forced into because of being a conservative trad wife, I guess, works out if your husband's great and he doesn't cheat on you and everything's fine. But as soon as he cheats on you, yeah, you're in a totally powerless position. From the get-go, she was supportive of him. She's like, divorce is not an option. She said from the very beginning, like, I would not even think of divorcing my husband, right? Just think about how much that would mess up her life, right? She lives in a big, beautiful house. What's that really expensive neighborhood where all the politicians live? What's that called? Uh, it can be Westminster or Kensington or... Yeah, so they live in a super expensive house, you know, they have kids, kids go to this private school, like, you know, all the other families would judge them probably if they got divorced, like, it would really mess up her lifestyle, and she doesn't have a job of her own, so just leaving a man who's cheating on you, and it's just not an option, and she talks about how her mother was the long-suffering wife, and she doesn't want to be like that, and so on, and it's like, it's unfortunate, but that life sets you up for that life, (laughs) sets you up to suffer. I had such a hard time feeling bad for her as a protagonist because of the fact that how like shit she treated Holly at college. And I'm like, oh, I know this type of woman. Like basically she's coasted her whole life. And I know it's it's supposed to set it up so that we feel kind of bad for her once, you know, the scandal comes to light. But it also kind of shows how she's completely complicit in exploiting others for her own benefit until like it doesn't benefit her anymore. So I was sort of on the fence, especially when it came down to her trying to destroy Olivia because of the affair and like her immediate reaction is like, well, we have to absolutely destroy her. I mean, I think she's supposed to be complex, but I don't necessarily think that she's supposed to be sympathetic because there was parts where I was like, eh. (laughs) Yeah, that's the thing. I'm not necessarily sympathetic to her. I'm just looking at her life and looking at the dynamics that are going on and being like, damn, that's really shit. Well, she's going to be fine. That's the thing about it. It's like she could choose to divorce and like, it's not like she's going to be broke, especially in light of a scandal. She more than likely would get a favorable divorce settlement. So that's what I'm saying. It's more or less like to be trying to paint her as, as like having to make a difficult choice when she has so many options. Actually, to me, didn't come across sympathetic so much as like, 
like privileged, but that's my observation of the show. Yeah. Maybe if you are privileged, like the idea of not being invited to like the, all the rich wife, husband, (laughs) all the rich husband and housewife events, like the idea of not being invited to those events because your ex-husband now has a second wife or married a secretary or whatever, you know, like the, I don't know if you watch the Betty Broderick show, but you know, if you're a rich housewife and you get divorced, it can really put a (laughs) cramp on your style kind of thing. Yeah. She could have just divorced him, but again, it would have like significantly impacted her life in a way that like, I don't know, that would seem really important to rich privileged people, you know? Yeah. The only thing I'm sympathetic with is with when you have small children is that it can be really hard to suddenly split your family and then have to like share your children. That makes a lot of sense. And I think if they had gone with that angle, it might've been a lot more sympathetic, but like the idea, I'm not going to be invited to this like posh rich person's club. And and it seemed like even her friends were somewhat sympathetic at first to the cheating. And it's like, she came in kind of defiant about the cheating where she was like, Oh, we're going to stand strong together. And her friend was, and her friend uh, when they were picking up their kids from school was like, well, yeah, you know, if, if a little cheating got in the way, there'd be no intact families in this entire school, et cetera. And just making comments like that. So it's sort of it sort of uh, painted that this is culturally what they're used to, and that an affair is just part of the lifestyle of living this upper crust life privilege, right? But I think where it gets complicated is like, yeah, her trying to destroy the other woman, even though she knows her husband's at fault. And I think she kind of slowly comes around and understands that he was at fault here. But it was sort of like the knee jerk solidarity, despite the fact that he admitted he had this affair. And then even when it came to the rape, her basically just outright denying that he was capable of the rape on top of that. Yeah, I mean, that's the whole time watching the show and she's standing by her rapist husband defending him. I was thinking, like, how embarrassing for her. That is, like, clown behavior, right? Like, and there's so many women like that where there's a Canadian celebrity, Jacob Hogard, who he was convicted of rape recently. And the whole time his wife just has just been standing by him, showing up to court, you know, being in the PR shots and stuff. I don't get it. Why would you... <laughs> it's just not only did your man cheat on you, but you're now standing there defending a rapist like i don't get it what causes women to embarrass themselves like this what was the name of the man or in the position of the man i didn't quite understand i think he's some kind of pr rep for he's like probably like a political advisor for the pm okay they manage like their image and or like director of communications or something like that and like number 10 really annoying smarmy dude Yeah, it seems like he had a big part of that where basically he was pressuring her to show up because the optics of her not showing up means that he's like implicitly guilty. But I'm of the opinion that if you do the crime yourself, you should have to defend yourself yourself. (laughs) But also, if you think about it, though, just remember, though, that Tom and James go back to Oxford. And this is a problem in even in real life British politics is that the politicians all went to Oxford together. So they're all friends. So and obviously, you know, Tom knows that James covered for him when he basically was responsible for the death of a student. So they have these weird sorts of, you know, you cover for me, I cover for you thing. And that's where it was coming from. Oh, so is that why they do all these fucked up things so that like they've all done fucked up things they all cover for each other? Yes, they've all done fucked up shit. So they all cover for each other. That's the British establishment. So it's kind of like in a gang, like when you murder each other and keep it separate or murder people and then keep it secret. Is that basically it? It's like the Scrotes Code of Honor, but the British establishment version. 
Jeez. That's you running your government? Fuck. And it's like they give each other jobs. Like, you know, George Osborne and David Cameron were best friends. And when Cameron was PM, Osborne became Chancellor of the Exchequer, basically in charge of the country's economy, despite knowing fuck all about economics. I hate the rich. Like... another thing the show made me hate the rich so much i felt like some sympathy i'm like more thinking like what are the things that are important to them what do they value the show really made me realize that rich people do not give a shit about like normal people that was another thing is like they only give a shit about their own like interpersonal drama they're running a whole country at no point these are all people in government at no point except for maybe rupert friend's character he was talking to little old lady at the beginning who you know got caught up in a crosswalk and he's like yeah i'm gonna like make the crosswalk indicator line longer so that disabled people can get through or something like that he's the only person and he's a rapist he's the only person in this whole show who seemed to actually give a shit about like governing <laughs> and like actually giving a shit about people and so but even for him it was all a performance right that's the fucked up thing like what did he ever actually mean any of that stuff or was he just is that just part of his public persona you know I think they said he was well-liked, so I'm guessing that overall he must have been known for being like fairly sincere in his politics, but I think that's part of why he's painted as complicated up until the last minute, right, of the show, because otherwise, you know, like the people's politician. I don't think they make it clear that he's dishonest. Yeah, but you can't be a people's politician if you're conservative and you went to Oxford, like... (laughs) like not that's the biggest joke like they just don't have a clue it's like a plot hole yeah i mean that's british politics in a nutshell like a lot of the people legislating just have no idea you know what life is like for the average person whereas in the united states we let all of the average people legislate and some of them really need to not be there because they don't know what they're doing or talking about There needs to be a balance somewhere, to be fair. You could go for it. It doesn't have to be Oxford versus... You can literally be anybody and legislate in the United States, which has its pros and its cons. <laughs> you can be like a failed restaurant, like shooting bar owner and then become a fucking congresswoman and then say the most insane shit on Twitter and then somehow become famous and a millionaire. Fuck this shit. Yeah, you could be a high school dropout, have literally no idea what you're talking about on any given subject and be part of our legislator. So yeah, you just have to go up on stage and just be like 9-11 and like, I like guns and uh, I pray to God and then boom, they'll elect you in America. By the people of the people for the people, but the people are retarded. (laughs) (laughs) Not my words, the words of a great philosopher. Which was <laughs> some random guy on the internet, <laughs> a random gif. <laughs> Sorry to drop the R bomb, but um, <laughs> sorry to say the R word, but <laughs> sorry. No, it's <laughs> just trust me, bro. That's what we're saying. That's what we're saying. Just trust me, bro. <laughs> No, I saw this gif. It's like some old guy who just like, I don't know who he is. He's some kind of like guru or like spiritual leader of some kind. Yeah, Rajneesh. (laughs) You know, that's the US contrasted with David Cameron giving the most disingenuous apology for being born into wealth. He was like, I'm sorry I was born into wealth. I was like, bitch, you're not sorry. (laughs) Sorry I was born rich. Sorry, not sorry. (laughs) 
they're sorry I've got money like bitch no you're not sorry anyway but you know going back to Sophie as well we see her and James's relationship develop at Oxford now Sophie is sort of the the coasting sort of exploitative shit well I'm just here to party kind of girl I don't know <laughs> but yeah not really taking her study seriously and you have Tom who is a member of the Libertines as well and she knows this too so she knows the background of the Libertines what they get up to but she's still really really drawn to Tom and what's interesting is that the night that James and Tom are involved in the death of that student he actually goes to Sophie's uh, room and he tries to tell her what's happened but she's like like, no no dear you know they're there I don't need to know oh yeah let's talk about the scene you know we see the foundations of a scrote and it's only like 20 years later that Sophie is finally able to connect the dots that this guy is a piece of shit but the signs were there all along Another thing I like about this show is like over the course of the show, her realizing all the times her husband was a piece of shit, like him cheating at Monopoly with their own kids. Like how fucked up is that? Right? (laughs) (laughs) And then why did I was like the whole time I'm like, sis, why did you not see that as a red flag? Like that come on. And like her talking to the parents and the parents being like, Oh yeah, he was always a cheater. He's always been like that kind of stuff. He's always been a piece of shit. You knew that when you married him kind of thing. And then, yeah. And then the night that that student dies, he goes and asks Sophie for an alibi and she covers for him. Not only does she say, no, I don't want to hear about it. She actually provides an alibi for him. Right. And let's face it as well. He was also probably prepping for an alibi for the rape as well, because he rapes Holly on the way to Sophie's room. Yeah. So he was already looking for an alibi. And so she basically covered for an associated murderer and a rapist. Yeah. I want to say like to any women listening, like obviously if you're 30 minutes into the FDS podcast, you're probably not the sort of woman who would do this. But I just want all women to know, like never cover for your man. I can't think of anything that would be like worth it or like morally justifiable and that wouldn't put you in like undue risk. All of them would put you in risk and all of them you're covering up for shitty behavior. And then the crazy thing is that he then learns that you are the type of woman who will be silent and who will cover for him. And will enable him as well. And will enable him. Like, keep in mind, ladies, like when you're vetting men, they're also vetting you. They're vetting for compliance. They're vetting for, are you going to, you know, encourage or enable my depravity? They're looking for a woman who will allow that. And if you allow that, they will do more of it. And you will be the victim of it next time. So that's actually the biggest reason why I wanted to talk about this show is because like you can see in those early phases of their relationship, like all of this could have been prevented if she'd noticed the red flags and just didn't accept them and just didn't date and marry him. What were some of the red flags in the early phases of their relationship? I'd say the company that he keeps is really important. If a guy or a man is surrounded by low value people, doesn't matter how rich they are or not, that you know, that is is a huge is a huge red flag in and of itself. Because I see some women try to say, like, oh, but you know, my partner's friend is an asshole, but he's one of the good ones. No. If he was one of the good ones, he wouldn't keep shitty people as friends. Yeah. The fact that he was in a club called the Libertines. Doesn't Libertines literally mean like morally loose, like sexually lascivious behavior kind of thing? Like, hold on. What's what's the definition of Libertines? I don't actually know what it means, but I know that the kid was asking about it and Sophie couldn't tell them. So I assumed it was something unsavory and foul. Oh yeah, there's an adorable scene where the child is like, what's a Libertine? And the mom's like, oh, it's someone who likes to have fun. And so the daughter's like, I'm a Libertine. And you know when kids, like, they learn words and they start saying inappropriate things because they don't know what they mean. And so she goes around calling herself a Libertine. I'm like, oh, that's hilarious. (laughs) 
So a libertine is a person, especially a man who behaves without moral principles or a sense of responsibility, especially in sexual matters. That's the dictionary definition. Oh my God. And so the name itself was a massive, massive red flag. Let's be real. Like the libertines, basically, you know, the exports to rapist island is basically what it meant. Yeah, men who are on their way to rapist island. Like, yeah, there's a scene where they grope a girl who's like serving them drinks and stuff. Like it may as well call your club like philanderer, seducer, womanizer, hedonist debauche adulterer degenerate (laughs) like these are all the words that are like when you google like libertine definition those are the words that are associated with it and it's like none of them are good and it wasn't as if like the libertines was like a club that i'm not saying it's ever okay but they're opportunists these groups these wealthy elite clubs they will go out of their way to cause damage and destruction and to sexually harass especially women they will literally go out of their way to do it and they know exactly what they're doing as well they hide it behind the guise of drinking but they it's very coordinated and very deliberate and that should have been a huge red flag and also the fact that as well is that Sophie was kind of brought into James's tears after he was crying about what happened to the friend who fell after Tom supplied him cocaine and she was like I've never seen him cry before was it cocaine or was it heroin it was either heroin or cocaine I think it was heroin and that's another thing as well is that a lot of times like male tears can be a sign of manipulation just because a guy is crying about something especially when it's in relation to something shitty that he's done that doesn't mean that he's sorry oh that's when the crocodile tears go flying <laughs> that's <a> crocodile t- <laughs> when they're being the worst that's when they start crying i don't know if you saw that video of like i caught my boyfriend cheating on me and then he started crying like i don't know if you saw that video it's like the most pathetic thing ever he's like oh my girl caught me cheating like what it's like why like it's obviously he's just trying to make you feel bad and lower your guard and so that you do what he wants One of the things I really wanted to talk about that I thought was interesting about this case is portraying instances of rape with someone you've had a previous sexual relationship with and how difficult that is, difficult to impossible that is to prove in court and how quickly the issue of consent and how entitled men feel around consent when they've had sex with you already Because I think part of the frustration and part of like triggering part of the rape is the extent that like this is a woman who actually liked this man who had had sex with James before, who was probably still interested in having sex with him. But at a time where she did not want to have sex with him, he didn't respect her no because he was in a fit of rage over some bad press, right? So I think this type of rape isn't often portrayed in media. And so I'm kind of glad that this show does actually show that. And it shows how difficult it is to prove in the court of law how unsympathetic of a character that Olivia ultimately came across as because of the fact that she, first of all, is like the other woman in an affair and and with a man she knows is married and is still obsessively trying to get with him despite the fact that... Yes, he's married. She knows he has a wife, et cetera. And the fact that he broke things off. So in any type of public perception situation, she's not likely to get another a lot of sympathy, not from men nor from women, because of the fact that she's the other woman and because of the fact that she knowingly had consensual sex with this man within the relationship, but also in the workplace, right? So you come later and you say, this man violated me, which he did. But at the same time, because you've agreed to these things prior, then people start to think like that it was reasonable for him to assume that she would have sex with him again in that moment, which makes it really, really difficult for you to try to prove a rape case. It gets really sticky. And even if they weren't like in affair partners, and even if this has been his wife, there is like a point where in a lot of relationships, and I would love to see this portrayed in cinema a lot 
more often where men start to really feel sexually entitled to women, if not from the very beginning, but sometimes they start to get this idea that like, oh, I can just have sex with my significant other whenever I want to. And this, her body's mine and she's my property. And that type of behavior, like they just start to kind of like push women into sexual situations that they're not comfortable with and disregard their no when they don't feel like it. Right. Because they start to take it for whatever reason, less seriously. I think it'd be interesting to talk about and hopefully see again in cinema about this kind of scenario, because I think a lot of women who experience sexual assault, especially sexual assault within a relationship, it starts very much like this because it's not likely if they had continued their affair in any type of way that that would have been the last time. And the sad part is if she had still considered the affair even after the rape, then people would still be blaming her for that and saying that like, oh, well, you went back to him, etc. Even though the relationship he has with him is kind of complex and that can override your ability to see and understand when someone's violating your boundaries in a serious manner. I think it becomes more clear that this is his MO when they flash back to the rape that he has with Holly. But I think like basically he gets drunk or he gets like in a fit of entitlement and rage and he just decides that like, oh, I'm entitled to this woman's body and seems to completely disregard what she's saying and doesn't at any point like seem to notice or acknowledge that if she's even saying yes and then just takes the absence of like her fighting him off aggressively as a complicit consent. And that's just really, really false. And that's like a really dangerous narrative to keep perpetuating. But at the same time, I think realistically, most courtrooms and in most of our culture, nobody would actually see that as rape. And I think that would be true of men and a great deal of women alike. That is such a good point. And I think this is the first time I've ever seen in media this type of sexual assault because they always portray the victim as completely like innocent and likable. You know, sometimes it's an, uh, someone they know, but usually it's someone they, the rapist is like a random stranger jumping out of the bushes or like a soldier or something like that. You know, the woman's often portrayed like fighting him off and stuff, but real rape in real life often does not go down like that. Often it is a man that the woman knows. Often it is the case that she doesn't fight back or she, you know, she's not agreeing to the sex, but she just sort of doesn't have the ability to fight him off because, you know, he's stronger than her. She knows that if she resists, he could hurt her more badly and so on, right? Yeah, I would like to see actually more portrayals of like, quote unquote, like realistic rapes, you know? I think the incident with Holly is juxtaposed against the incident with Olivia to kind of show that men like this, they don't stop at one rape, they tend to start to think that women are here to sexually service them. And so, but the thing is, is that for most women, they start to blame themselves in that situation and they don't realize that this is this guy's boundary pushing MO. Some guy like that would probably get away with like dozens of rapes like that before anybody started to call him out on this sexually predatory behavior because it would always be portrayed as, as like, well, as some kind of understandable sexual confusion or like miscommunication between the two rather than entitled. It's really, really difficult to explain unless you've experienced it. And so when we have these discussions about like Me Too and women coming forward with their sexual assault, a lot of these guys have like, quote, no idea they were raping and like these other men will go up for them and be like, oh, he's my friend and he would never do something like that. But it's like the truth of the matter is, is that a lot of times these situations are a case of, I can't remember who coined this phrase, but affluenza, where a man feels that he's sexually entitled to women. Like, and he feels it so strongly that he has absolutely ignored whatever that woman wants in any type of situation. It's a different type of rape than like, you know, a guy who hides behind the bushes who's like a psychopath, right? Who like drags a woman, hides the bushes. That's the thing. People all assume that that's what a rapist is. Like everyone thinks that a rapist is like a creepy guy who can't get women that you know that he's a rapist from seeing him, right? Based on his like behavior, he's probably weird or whatever. No one ever thinks that a man who's like, who has social skills, who's married, who, 
you know, can clearly get women consensually, right? People never think a man like that could be a rapist, even though it's extremely common. It's affluenza. It's basically the Stanford rape case, the swimmer that had raped a woman behind a dumpster who was, I think, drunk and unconscious. Oh, yeah. Brock Turner. Yeah, Brock Turner. Like, there's a certain level of privilege and entitlement that men have where they feel like the lack of a no is a yes, right? Or they think they can just impose their will on other people. Exactly. You know, it's or it's like Donald Trump, for example, him talking about how he could, you know, when you're a celebrity, you can just go up and grab women by the pussy. Like, where does he get that idea from? He's got that same male entitlement affluenza, especially if you're powerful. So I think more discussion needs to happen about this kind of rape from men who have a innate entitlement to women's bodies and how that and the many ways that can manifest because it's generally not like just rape. It's generally multiple areas of their life where they have this way that they exploit people and feel like they don't have to participate or they don't have to check to see if the person next to them is participating in the experience. And I don't know if this is on purpose on the part of the writer. Like the entire exchange between Sophie and Holly where like Sophie's basically trying to pawn off all her work on Holly and just basically being kind of dismissive and exploitative of her and then juxtapose that with how James is exploitative of her. It kind of shows you how that entire situation works in tandem, especially for women who are working class or perceived as lower class or less attractive or something. You know, it in a lot of ways, she's exploited on multiple levels by the same family, right? I want to say that that's why they were trying to not... Neither of these characters, even Sophie, what, even though she kind of has a sort of a hero arc at the end, neither of these characters are ultimately totally sympathetic because it's showing how women can also be complicit in exploiting others because of a sense of entitlement, right? And one of the ways that it manifests is obviously like Sophie pawning after work, but in men, it can be very, very sexualized. You know, your point made me realize something, Ro, like probably the most common type of rape is like, you know, a husband or a boyfriend, you know, just like regular, like marital rape, right? That's probably the most common form of like sexual coercion. Like I'm thinking of all the times that I've been in a relationship and I didn't want to have sex, but my boyfriend was like badgering me or being like emotionally withholding or whatever. And I eventually just like capitulate and I just like have sex with him just to like, it's like, you know, maintenance sex almost like just to like, shut him up, right? I've never seen that sort of thing portrayed on TV. I've just realized I've never seen that portrayed in media. Like, can you think, like, maybe I'm missing something. Like, for any listeners listening... I can't think of it. I can't think of it either. Comment, you know, somewhere, let us know or send us an email or something because, like, I cannot think of a single piece of media where that dynamic of, like, man wants sex, woman doesn't want sex, man just badgers her, compels her into sex, and they continue on having a relationship and how, like, sadly, extremely common that is, and yet it's never portrayed in media. Yeah, right, because I feel like it's just, it's almost like violating to watch, right? I found the rape between James and Olivia on the lift to be a little bit triggering because I kind of know what it's like to really actually want a guy and have him still violate your sexual boundaries in a really confusing way. And because our culture sort of grooms women to sexually acquiesce to men's desires and through things like maintenance sex, it never portrays, it never really shows like what that does to your dignity, self-esteem and self-worth and what it does to like your overall sex drive. You know, even things like maintenance sex or acquiescing to a guy who badgers you. Like, I mean, the few times I've done it, I've just sort of felt like resentful and eventually like it was just sort of beneath me to do, right? Like you just end up feeling like a receptacle for a man's sexual desire in a way that's really not like healthy. It's dehumanizing. Yeah, physically or emotionally healthily for you. But all the other mainstream outlets, like they never portray this because 
I don't know if it's just because they're trying to romanticize the reality of it that like you should just sort of think of yourself like as a, a whole that's like not that doesn't necessarily enjoy the sexual experience because you're trying to make sure that your husband is satisfied. But like, what are you doing to yourself to make that happen? I think they don't portray it in media because it's like too dark. And because a lot of like writers in Hollywood are men, right? When they write these scenes, they think they write it like, oh yeah, she was totally into it kind of thing, right? Because like, that's the what they tell themselves anyways, because they don't want to see themselves as rapists. I don't think they would ever portray that side of the equation. You'd need like a female writer, probably. I feel like only a woman knows what that is like when you're in a relationship and you love your man, but you don't want to have sex and he wants to have sex and he just makes you have sex, right? That's rape. But like, it's so normalized. And you're not likely to go to the police for it because you're not likely to be believed or, I mean, there's no legal recourse for that. There's no way to prove it. Yeah, it'd be really hard to prove it if like, yeah, you had sex with them consensually yesterday and now you're saying you were raped. You don't necessarily have any physical scars from it. You don't have any bruises. You don't have any like, yeah. Yeah, they'll be like, walk it off and do something else, you know? And even if there is any evidence I had sex, all the guy has to say was, but it was consensual. Like we had rough sex, it was consensual. And then it's your word against him. And the legal system isn't set up in a victim-friendly way because the onus is all on the victim to prove that it did happen. You know, the fucked up thing is nowadays with like the acceptance of BDSM culture and all that stuff, you probably could show up to a police station beaten black and blue, say you were raped. And then the guy could just be like, oh, she consented to it. She's kinky. And then the investigation would then hinge on, yeah, like does she have a history of doing BDSM stuff? You know, did she, you know, agree to, you know, this act in one situation, but not in this situation kind of thing. And like, it would be attacking her character, her credibility. She'd be the one who's on trial. Like how fucked up is that? Yeah, because I actually spoke to a police officer who dealt with such a case where it was a BDSM relationship. She had consented to like, you know, let's say, you know, she consented to being whipped. She didn't consent to anal, but then she consented to oral sex. And he was like, how do you disentangle that sort of situation? You can't, like legally, it's really difficult to disentangle because it's possible to consent to two acts, but not the third one. And that was the case that they had. And it was about proving that she didn't consent to the third act that they found really, really difficult when they were compiling the file for the Crown Prosecution Service who decide whether or not to prosecute and obviously the case was dropped. I think this is why we need more discussion about like different types of rape in the same way that we have different types of theft. There's just different types of rape. I could see in that situation you being like someone like Olivia feeling like he raped me, but do I want to go to prison for like 40 years or whatever the rape sentence is? It's like three here, but yeah. <laughs> oh, and okay. Never mind. Fuck the UK. Yeah. <laughs> What? I wish. Even murderers don't get 40 years in the UK. Like, even actual murderers. Like, rape is like, it's something stupid. Yeah, only in the States can you go to prison for hundreds of years. Like, <laughs> <laughs> like a thousand years. He could be sentenced to. I don't think our rape sentences are actually that high either, but I don't know. But I think a lot of them, depending on the state, some of them are like minimum 10 years. You can still get paroled after like half time served. It depends on the crime and it depends on the state. But I know in some jurisdictions, there's really only nothing and uh, felony rape, right? There's no discussion about something in between like sexual battery or something that might be like a year or two and a fine. And I think what happens with why sometimes women get reluctant to report it as well is because like if you have a complicated relationship with that person and you still otherwise love them but still want them to be held accountable for their actions if you otherwise love them and still want them to be held accountable for their actions you can feel a sense of guilt to go to the police because you're afraid of them being locked up for decades right that can be a huge responsibility even put on the victim like i think we have to talk about uh sentencing as far as like these 
rapes, but aren't the same as like a psychopath snatching you from the bushes. That that requires us talking about the multifaceted aspects of rape in real detailed language in the same way that we might talk about theft, right? Like something like petty theft or like stealing money out of a vending machine or something like that is quite different than like an armed robbery and going into a bank or is quite different from like some kind of Ponzi scheme, complicated Ponzi scheme where you grift people. Those are all different types of theft, but they all come with very different types of cultural narratives and very different types of sentencing. And I think if anything, this show illustrates that it's time to really expand the language around rape to include these types of incidences and like, how do we fairly prosecute these and talk about these so that both the victim gets restitution, the perpetrator gets punished in a way that's fair, and that we can make sure that there's uh, more incentive for women to come forward about guys like this who commit these quote unquote, like small, like gray rapes, so that their behavior doesn't continue and they keep raping women because they never face any consequences for it. I don't know. It's one of those things where I feel like talking about it can be beneficial in that it increases the woman's awareness. And the woman is like, I don't have to put up with this. I don't have, you know, this is what we do with FDS where women are everywhere waking up. Like, I don't have to do maintenance sex. I don't have to have sex unless I 100% want to have sex kind of thing. Right. But I talking to men about this, like, I don't know, like they rape because they feel sexually entitled. And I feel with these sorts of men, when you talk about how these sorts of incidents are rape, they get extremely offended. It just makes me realize probably most, if not all men have like done sexual coercion in some form towards a woman, except for maybe like a small percentage of men who are like, you know, not interested in sexuality or just (laughs) don't have that kind of drive, you know? I, I almost wonder, like, you know, talking about, like, intimate partner rape and stuff, like, we should definitely still talk about it. But I don't really expect a lot of sympathy from men. I don't expect men to, like, change their behavior. I, I expect them to react very much the same way that they react to FDS, which is, like, you know, freaking the fuck out, basically, and having, like, an extremely hostile, extremely negative reaction. I don't think any of these guys are going to be like, you know what, like, you're right, I did commit a rape at, to this woman at, like, 1989 or something like that. Like, they're never going to admit that they're rapists. They're just going to fight this narrative that we're pushing which is that like women should only have sex 100% of the time when they want it kind of thing they're just going to make excuses like oh you want all these innocent men to be locked up in jail yada 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 like they're not going to have a good reaction I remember the yes means yes movement was trying to correct some of that. Wasn't there a law in Canada that just recently changed that was basically saying rape is the lack of affirmative consent? Was it Canada? No, in Canada, we had actually a really, really bad law passed recently, which was that rapists and other types of criminals can claim voluntary self-intoxication as a defense. So they can get away with their crimes if they say, I was drunk. Oh my gosh. So if they chose to drink earlier that night and they commit a crime, that's an actual defense Well, that's insane. Yeah, actually insane. Yeah. So it's been a huge problem, especially with like rape culture and so on. So yeah, I almost feel like men are trying to roll shit back because it doesn't benefit them to admit that any of this stuff is sexual assault, right? But we need to arm our troops. We need to prepare our troops. Like this is for the women. Okay. You know, the whole like, oh, we need to teach men not to rape. I don't know. I I feel like they're not going to want to learn that. That's a lesson they don't want to learn. Well, like I said in a previous episode, a lot of these guys feel like the ends justify the means, right? Like it's a W if they have sex, so they don't really care how they got said sex short of forcible rape, which most of them, most of them can recognize as a crime. But everything, of you know, underneath that, anything that's less than forcible rape, they don't necessarily see as rape because they feel more or less like, yeah, first of all, entitlement or like they feel like it's a violation of their free speech to not harass you. (laughs) Didn't they just try to pass a law or like, hold on, let me Google this. India marital rape law. Did you hear about this? So India is trying to pass a law that makes marital rape illegal. 
So making it illegal to rape your wife. And the men are freaking the fuck out being like, men aren't going to want to get married if I can't rape my wife anymore kind of thing, right? Like the men in India are freaking the fuck out. It's causing this whole like rise of the men's rights activist movement and stuff. And you know, we did an episode with female political strategy about this surplus of men, right? And how having all these extra unmarried men to begin with is dangerous, right? So this law is causing like mayhem, even though it's a law that needs to be passed. It's like the male backlash to it is so extreme and so costly. It's like, what do you even do, right? I mean, yeah, that's because men are constantly legally advocating on their own behalf. But women's organizations, for whatever reason, have all decided to go all in on pet causes instead of like some of the grassroots causes that women need as far as more representation in the family court system. You're seeing a lot more focus on other types of ideologies that they're not as practically concerned as, you know, things of like definitions of rape and family court systems, etc. So I don't know where this type of discussion goes. I think it's something we can definitely parse out furthermore in the future. But I think this show, if you were to watch it and you've ever experienced any type of rape in a relationship or sexually violating behavior in a relationship, I think most women, because they don't want to say that they are raped, most women probably wouldn't do what Olivia did because obviously there's the the public scrutiny your career would be toast. So most women in that situation are going to walk it off. The question is like, should we have to, which I think no. And what kind of mechanism and legal recourse do we have in the cases of where you're with or you're in a consensual relationship, you've had consensual sex with this person, and then they pull something like that. So before we wrap, so one thing I noticed about this show is that it has been review bombed on a bunch of different platforms. It's probably like the Tory or probably the MPs were under investigation doing it because it's hitting too close to home. Probably them. <laughs> so I want to explain actually like how I felt watching the show. I really like the show, right? So as soon as I finished watching it, I finished it all in one session, binge watched it till like 4am. I went on the internet to see what does the internet have to say about this show? I want to see other people agreeing with me about how amazing it is. And guess what I found? I found almost exclusively negative reviews. This is what I mean about like negative male backlash. And surprisingly, women too, actually, like a lot of women were giving one-star reviews and saying like, oh, the rape victim isn't likable. You know, this is like terrible. Like this Me Too has been bad for men and yada, yada, yada. And I'm a grandmother of a 33-year-old son. And if my son went through this, I would be so sad and that kind of shit, right? So I wanted to read some of the terrible reviews of the show and, and roast them. What do you guys think? Let's read it because it'll really show why this show is so polarizing and, and kind of illustrate why it's difficult to talk about rape like this. Some of these are super long, by the way, but so I'm just going to read like the interesting parts. One review that really stood out to me was, this is a review from Marissa. She writes, I'm usually not a negative reviewer, but I'm only giving this one star because of the way the writers created the ending. Initially, I was enjoying everything about the series. The actors are all top notch. They deserve five stars, maybe even more. Even the plot was interesting and plot twisting, which I absolutely enjoyed, but I'll tell you why the series does not deserve a second season. First of all, like they wouldn't make a second season. It's like a mini series. So anyways, but she writes, all the episodes were great, except for the very last episode. Spoiler alert. Why did the wife just divorce James and be a goody two shoe? I'm a feminist and ethical, but I also did not like that the wife basically ratted James out. She knew what she was getting into when she married him. She knew he was part of an old boys club. To put her role as a goody two-shoe woman over being a wife was just beyond disloyal. It made me cringe that she was choosing to leave her man. And not only that, but destroy the careers of two men. Yes, they were bad. Yes, they concealed bad things. But also, they did not actively murder the kid. It was a stretch to hold them accountable, in my honest opinion. What a feminist. So feminist, right? 
I'm a feminist, but also why would you leave her rapist man? Oh my god. That's definitely written by a dude, surely. Yeah, definitely written by a man. She says, I did not like the last episode and honestly want to tell viewers to not waste your time watching this show. Just watch Bowda or Fairy and Undercover or Queen of the South or even Hit and Run. What? I've never heard of any of these shows. Okay. I am mad that I wasted my time on this series. This is how you know it's written by a man because it started out like, oh, I'm a feminist, yada, yada. And then at the end, it's like, I am mad that I wasted my time on this series. Netflix should not renew this. So now Holly or Kate, instead of being disbarred from being a lawyer, smiles at the end because she got lucky that the wife ratted James and his boss out. I don't like how these women treated these men. Sorry, I did not enjoy the show at all. That's definitely a guy. This is the same review. This is the same person. Sorry, I did not enjoy the show at all. In real life, they worked hard in their careers. And one small scandal where it seems that maybe the woman consented, Holly or Kate or whatever her name is, cries and says sexual assault. After billions of years later, this Me Too movement thing is just awful. For men, it sets back feminism many, many years. I am super embarrassed being female because it's like how these women cry sexual assault and now men cannot even give compliments because they are super afraid of being called a predator a rapist oh my god this is like an actual like apple review oh my god okay we live in a very very sad society thanks to me too movement i no longer or rarely give compliments okay whereas before they were left and right this series angered me about the me too movement and its negative impact on how society and men and women relate to each other even a basic hug now is very rare because men are afraid of sexual harassment allegations shame on society and on the series i am tired of propagating the me too movement such a shame Oh my god, the men mass brigaded this shit, 100%. Yeah, I'm like reading these comments and like there's hundreds like this, like exactly like this, and saying like, you know, he was honest, this is a different review, he was honest, foolish, but caring as far as telling his wife every extra detail of the uni party, blah blah blah, you know, he's so honest and open with his wife, and you know, yada yada yada, and I'm like, you know, another one, a feminist wet dream on this one. The fact that we're trying to promote a privileged male into this rip- mythical rape culture is not interesting at all. More of a fantasy, to tell you the truth. A wife who stands by her husband until the very end and then walks away brings no loyalty to her family. When we know this is the one family she has and take her kids through even more chaos is not virtuous at all. A woman sleeping with a married man. Oh, that's the other thing. That's another thing I see a lot in these reviews where they're saying that, like, why didn't Holly get punished in some way? Like, they think it's unjust that Holly, like, the prosecutor... They're like, well, she's sleeping with the married man too. Like, why did why didn't she face any consequences? Well, that was when well, I don't agree with it, but it's very different to rape. I don't know how they're equating that. That's the thing I get from these reviews is like they literally don't see it as rape. I know. I feel like the series kind of leaves it open ended too, which I think allows a lot of this rhetoric. Meaning because they don't really address the discussion of like whether how someone you know and someone you've had sex with before can rape you then they just sort of leave it open and so the vast majority of people are going to take this side that olivia's lying and or olivia is just a woman scored and that everybody believing this woman and the fallout from it is just discrimination against men me too and feminism like they're going to use that to discredit me too Right. And say that, like, this is what happens in most of these cases because they don't see this as rape. And in fact, they even, I think maybe they ethically compromise Holly, the prosecutor, on purpose to once again, I don't know exactly what they're trying to do with the narrative exactly, except for so that it's complicated. So they just make everyone sort of ethically compromised in some way. And I think the effect of that is that it ends up drawing sympathy towards the man even more because, like, what's wrong with what he did versus, like, Olivia having an affair with a married man and following him around and getting upset when he broke up things 
things off with her and uh, Holly also having sex with, I think he said she was either he was her pupil master. He was her teacher. Yeah. Yeah. So some, I don't know what a pupil master. Yeah. What's a pupil master? <laughs> Savannah, can you explain this phrase to us? A pupil master is almost like a tutor or like a teacher, but pupil master is often used in like a posh school, like a private school or Oxford. Okay. But it's like a teacher, basically. A pupil master. So she was sleeping with her pupil master. Sorry. Yeah. And so talking about like the different ethics around that as well. So I feel like they purposely ethically compromise everyone in this situation. But then I feel like it has the effect of minimizing the kind of rape that Olivia experienced at the hands of James, which again is why men hate this. Yeah. Oh, just a correction, actually. Pupil master in this context is the name given to an experienced barrister who a pupil shadowed. So they were actually adults when it started. It wasn't like a school thing. Because like when you're training to be a barrister, you have what's known as a pupillage, which is where you're training. And your pupil master is the barrister that you're shadowing, basically. So they started as work colleagues, basically. Okay, so that's like less of a power dynamic, like less creepy of a power dynamic. I mean, there is still a power dynamic because he was an experienced barrister, but it's not like she was a sh- like underage like student when they met. Like she would have been over the age of probably twenty one at least. Yeah, and he has a wife, so also it's like she's also the other woman in this situation. I've talked about this on Twitter. This narrative that like as a woman you have to be likable in order for you to be seen as like not deserving of rape is really fucked up. Like, or this idea that like only likable rape victims are believed is a really fucked up narrative that like all women we need to banish this shit from our minds. Like, we need to actually banish the idea that like oh if a woman is like morally repugnant in some way or if I don't like her as a person or whatever then I'm not going to believe her if she has a rape accusation because this is a narrative that actually puts all women in danger. It doesn't take much for patriarchy to decide that you're not a likable woman. Any woman could, you know, all humans are flawed, right? Any flaw could be used against you if you were to accuse a man of rape. I think in this case, too, what makes it more difficult is the specificity of them being the other woman, because I feel like they could be unlikable and still sympathetic if they weren't specifically having sex with married men, in which case, like sort of violating the girl code, right? So then they end up with no allies because even women who might otherwise be sympathetic, they look at this as like them trying to choose when the lesser of two evils, which is like, do I believe, like, do we center our case around the concept that even like a woman who's engaged in a consensual affair with a man can be raped and obviously they can or do we look at this as a natural consequence of being having sex with a man and an unethical man that you know in an unethical situation is that sometimes bad things happen and then there's no recourse right and i'm not making a judgment on women who come down on either side of that because i feel like what happens is like a lot of women like they say the first thing was like a woman can be raped in any situation and it doesn't matter that she was having sex with a married man but then like emotionally they feel very strongly the other way because they're like at this at the same time fuck you bitch right like because <laughs> you knew that was i was married to him you know what i mean so it's like it's a very difficult like ethical situation which is why i feel like they specifically put her in that situation so that like a lot of women wouldn't feel sympathy for her in that situation but even though like legally it's probably important to assert the fact that yes you can be raped even if you're doing something extremely unethical it's just like is a jury likely to be sympathetic to a woman who faces consequences of her 
actions uh, in the middle of some unethical behavior. Because it's kind of like someone who gets shot during an armed robbery. Like, yeah, they shouldn't have been shot and it's fucked up. But at the same time, you're robbing somebody, right? Yeah, but being the other woman, you know, or having an affair is not the same as like robbing someone. It's like, it is shitty, but it's like, I think all women need to reject the premise that like being raped is a natural consequence of being an affair partner. I don't think it's a natural consequence so much as it's like, like I said, I, I, maybe that was a, the analogy I use is like, if you get hurt in the middle of a crime, people tend not to feel bad for you, even though you were actually hurt legitimately. And I feel like that's the emotion they're trying to evoke with this narrative of her being the other woman, that a lot of women will look at that like something happened to you or like somebody slapped you or, or hit you or shot you in the middle of an armed robbery. Yeah, they shouldn't have done that. Yes, it's criminal. Yes, you're going to be in the hospital. But also you tried to commit a robbery. So their sympathies are limited. So I think the emotionally complex part of this is like how you know, it, a lot of women, even in that situation, may not side with her. And it's like, how do we have these discussions and then be honest on both sides? I don't know. My default position is to always side with the woman, even if she's a bad person. Yeah, that's just my default position. Unless she's done something truly heinous that's harmful to women, in which case, like, her net contributions to womanhood has been negative, has been in the red, then yeah, I probably won't be as supportive. Legally, I think we need to always take the side of the woman in the rape. Like strategically always, yeah. Yeah, strategically 100%. I'm just saying emotionally, that's what we don't, we don't make legal headway because emotionally, most women are not going to like ignore the second part. Again, the FDS like cost benefit analysis mentality is not a mentality that everyone seems to have. I'm looking at it like, the same way I looked at almost like with the Amber Heard thing, where like, you know, Amber Heard, she's not a perfect person. She did some bad things too. But the consequences of her losing this trial would be so bad for women that I have to take her side, right? And so same thing with like rape cases where, you know, if the woman is like not an ideal person or whatever, this is why I'm like, I stand Eileen Mornos, right? <laughs> because it's like the consequences of rape victim not being taken seriously or, you know, a rapist getting off scot-free, the consequences to women are so high that like, even if she's an imperfect person, I'm still going to take her side kind of thing, right? That's kind of what I want to almost like wrap up with. It's important to always take the side of the woman. And if you take the side of the man, you're going to look like Sienna Miller's character. You're going to look like a fucking clown. Yeah. She, she looks like a clown because she's defending her husband. I think it's a different story. Yeah, she looks like the biggest clown of all of them. Yeah. Defending your husband is a different story than like, meaning like you can both feel morally compromised about supporting another woman, but also like flat out pretending that like is not capable of that and then trying to destroy her is where it gets i think that's way more harmful to women that's way more harmful and that's when you become part of the problem but i think as far as like outside observers for outside observers if you're watching this case and you're part of the jury or something like that i think it's important to recognize that the legal implications of not believing women in this situation and then like being focused on retribution because she was the other woman instead of putting in illegal precedents for the idea that even women in morally complicated situations can be raped and that we should take that seriously is going to be part of the uphill battle of like dismantling rape culture, especially when it comes to the legal system. But that does require a certain level of objectivity and recognizing the bigger battle outside of the initial emotional response of just kind of maybe hating a woman who actively and knowingly engages in an affair with a married man, which does also feel like a betrayal from another woman, which makes women less sympathetic when that happens. 
Yeah. I will say, though, that like, even if the woman's done terrible things, like, like you said, you have to think not just of the individuals themselves, but also what does that mean, like legally in like precedent setting, right? You know, today, it might be another woman who's being subjected to this, but tomorrow it might be you, right? So even if it doesn't, you feel like this isn't affecting you personally, it could someday. And that's why I feel like all women have a stake in this in, you know, in holding these men accountable. Yeah, you could be in a relationship with a man and a consensual relationship, no cheating, etc. Just a guy that you're dating and he could rape you in that manner. And now you don't have any legal recourse because of the fact that other women in this same situation saw a woman who was engaged in a similar situation, but the man was married. And so they didn't look at the legal precedents and then just felt a sort of hatred towards the woman because she was the affair partner and not understanding the ripple effects of that, which I think, you know, what, just to reiterate what you just said, Lilith is very reminiscent of the Amber Heard case, where when we have unsympathetic victims and mess up situations, people don't think about the larger legal precedents that set and whether or not it was right or wrong. And they go off a a sense of emotion about trying to punish women who are morally compromised. Yeah, I don't want to say point out like rape is never a consequence for morally, you know, inappropriate behavior ever. It's never a consequence for anything ever because like, yeah. But I'm just saying like jury trials that happens all the time. And it's not just with rape. It's like the guy that murders a pedophile who raped his daughter, right? Like juries tend to not give a shit about people who get hurt in the commission of a crime. True. Although I will say that pedophiles that get murdered by the parents of their victim based, super based, 10 out of 10. Like, yeah, (laughs) I support that. (laughs) Right, exactly. But that's like the same mentality that that sometimes causes people to pile on women who are victims of legitimate crimes is if if they look at them and they're like, oh, I think exactly that's probably happened with uh, with Amber Heard as well. If they think of her like she's the other woman or she's going to do this, then they look at it like, oh, we're going to pile on this person because like they're already an ethically compromised person, rightly or wrongly. But I do feel like we should talk about it and parse that out because I don't think you can talk about rape culture without talking about that dynamic specifically. I agree. All right. So that was Anatomy of a Scandal. Let us know your thoughts if you watch the show. I hope you got some good meaty discussion out of the complicated issues surrounding this and what we can do going forward. Um, let us know what you think on our website at www.femaledatingstrategy.com forward slash forum, where we post a weekly thread and you can discuss your opinions on this episode. Also follow us on Twitter at femdeathstrat and our Instagram at underscore the female dating strategy. And join us on Patreon, patreon.com forward slash the female dating strategy. Thanks for listening, queens. And for all you pompous Billingdon bellends out there, die mad.